I'm Catherine Hadro. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly Showdown on Capitol Hill. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions. Hunter Biden stands before lawmakers to defend his family name. We have the latest. No to weapons, yes to peace. In the midst of fighting, Pope Francis begs for immediate ceasefire in the Middle East. High court hearing. The Supreme Court announces it will take on a chemical abortion case. Hear what this means for the safeguard of women and for abortions in the U.S. And... Why an Italian martyr is lovingly celebrated in Scandinavia. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Lucy. I'm Catherine Hadro in for Tracy Sable. Our top story tonight. For the first time since the overturning of Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court will take up a high-stakes case involving abortion. The justices will review a lower court's August ruling that reimposed safeguards on the abortion drug mifepristone. It comes after several pro-life groups and individuals sued the FDA, arguing the administration did not properly review the drug before approving it and that it continues to endanger women. Arguments are set for the spring with a decision expected by late June. To break down the case, we go now to Prudence Robertson, host of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. Prudence, give us more background on today's Supreme Court announcement. Catherine, the Supreme Court will consider a fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision in which it was determined that safeguards on mifepristone, which were struck down in 2016, should be reinstated. Among those vital safeguards, one would prohibit the selling and distribution of abortion pills by mail to women without even an in-person doctor visit. Now, President Biden and Danco Laboratories, which makes abortion pills, appealed the Fifth Circuit's decision to the Supreme Court. It's the latest in court battles surrounding mifepristone. And until the Supreme Court weighs in, these deadly drugs remain available by mail. And the decision in this case come June or July, Catherine, could have far-reaching implications given that chemical abortions make up for more than half of all abortions currently happening nationwide. And as a reminder, mifepristone is the first pill in a two-pill chemical abortion regimen. Mifepristone blocks the naturally occurring hormone progesterone, which babies need in the womb to survive. So essentially, mifepristone starves children in the womb to death. We'll continue to track this case very closely. Back to you. We turn now to Eric Baptist, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, who represents the pro-life plaintiffs in this case. Eric, thank you for joining us. How significant is it that the Supreme Court is taking up this case, and what are the potential outcomes of it? This is a significant case because women's health is in jeopardy, because in particular what the Biden administration did when an authorized mail-order chemical abortion, where now the doctor has been removed from the equation, a woman is not screened before or after she takes drugs that essentially induce labor and delivery in her home, in a dorm room, or in a parent's uh, house without any medical supervision, without any care or management of this process. So it's important that now we have the nation watching and the U.S. Supreme Court to hold accountable the FDA for its illegal actions. Two courts have already agreed with us, and we look forward to presenting our case to the Supreme Court. The White House says the Food and Drug Administration was correct in saying mifepristone is safe and effective. You know, I know you represent medical doctors who have seen the dangers of mifepristone. How would you respond to the White House's claim? 
The White House is simply wrong. Its own FDA says upwards of 5% of women will present themselves to emergency rooms after taking this drug. That's not safe and effective. And our doctors, our clients in this case, are frontline doctors who work in America's emergency rooms across this country. And they have seen firsthand the harm and damage done to women by FDA's chemical abortion regimen. They've had to treat women for severe hemorrhaging and bleeding and other life-threatening conditions. So simply to say that this is safe is false inaccurate and frankly dangerous. Well, to that point, you have been telling us how this case is about safeguarding women and girls. You know, to that point, do you think there is any potential for those who maybe typically advocate for abortion to come and support your argument? This is one of those issues where I hope that everyone who no matter what part of the spectrum you fall on, left, right, or middle of the road, can come around and agree with us that women deserve better than what the FDA has given them. Because a woman deserves to be screened for life-threatening conditions before she takes dangerous drugs. She deserves to have care by a doctor before she takes the drugs and follow-up care afterwards. Simply taking all those safeguards away from a woman is not pro-women's health. So I hope people who, no matter where you fall on the abortion spectrum, can come and together and support us in this case. Eric, for those who are catching up on this case, can you summarize what the legal battle has looked like so far? We filed our lawsuit just over a year ago on behalf of four national medical associations and four individual doctors. These doctors have represented and treated and cared for women across this country who have been harmed by chemical abortion drugs. And the FDA has always recognized that abortion, uh, emergency room doctors are going to be a big part of the equation because they've recognized that upwards of 5% of women will need to go to the emergency room. And then the FDA has absolved the abortionists from ever having to take care of women for complications after taking these drugs. Our doctors have finally said this, enough is enough. We've been trying to engage the FDA in a meaningful conversation for the last two decades to no avail. It's now the time, it's now it's time for the courts to intervene and to step in and hold the FDA accountable for violating the law. Because when Congress delegated its authority to the FDA to be the nation's drug gatekeeper, it gave specific instructions to the FDA on how to approve a new drug and make changes to a, an abort, a, a drug regimen. And the FDA failed to follow those directions from Congress. And that's where the court stepped in to hold the FDA accountable, like any other federal agency in this city, accountable for failing to follow the law in congressional direction. Mm. Eric, do you have any quick thoughts on what you're expecting from the Supreme Court, given today's legal landscape? We expect a relatively quick turnaround in terms of we have to file briefs. We're going to have oral argument in some part of next year and a decision by the summer. So things are going to move relatively quickly. But we look forward to engaging the Supreme Court and the American public about our case and talking about what the FDA has done to harm women's health. So we look forward to continuing this conversation across this country and in America's Supreme Court room. Eric Baptist with Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you. Thank you. The White House welcomes the Supreme Court's announcement that it's taking up the Mifepristone case. In a statement, the White House says in part, quote, we continue to urge Congress to pass a law restoring the protections of Roe versus Wade, the only way to ensure the right to choose for women in every state. More fireworks today in the Hunter Biden investigation. The president's son, Hunter, made a visit to Capitol Hill, not to testify behind closed doors as scheduled, but to denounce the investigation into him and his father. Let's check in with Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales, who has been covering the story for months. Eric? 
Well, good evening, Catherine. Yes, a defiant hunter, Biden stood before the media cameras claiming that his father has no financial stake in his business dealings with foreign nationals. Hunter said that he would not sit in a closed-door deposition before the House Oversight or Judiciary Committees and claims the targeting of, quote, the unrelenting Trump attack machine is in high gear, all to make him and his father look bad for the upcoming presidential election. Let me state as clearly as I can, my father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman, not in my investments at home nor abroad. Hunter Biden admitted that he was extremely irresponsible with his finances while suffering from a drug addiction, but added to suggest its grounds for impeachment is shameless. There's no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. James Comer, Jim Jordan, Jason Smith, and their colleagues have distorted the facts. Not so, say House Republicans. After watching Hunter Biden's press conference, Congressman Jim Jordan, Judiciary Committee Chair, claims Hunter's story is changing again. He said his father was not financially involved in the business. And I think that qualifier, the word financially, is, is important because once again it shows another change, another change in the story. First it was no involvement, then no, I never, never talked to anyone, and then we find out about the dinners, the meetings, the phone calls, and everything else. Because we've requested thousands of emails that they still will not turn over. Uh, we've requested transcribed interviews with certain White House staff that they've <clears throat> instructed not to come. So the White House continues to obstruct. Democrats were quick to come to the president's defense. So we know what's happening here. They have they have devised a story that they cannot substantiate with facts. And so they've decided that they want to invent uh, their own take without evidence. And they want to ensure that that evidence remains behind closed doors and away from public view. Both Congressman uh uh, Jim, Jim Jordan and James Comer tell me that with Hunter Biden's refusal to testify, they will, quote, initiate contempt of Congress proceedings. Both lawmakers say that Hunter does not get to dictate the terms of his subpoena. It's important to note that Congressman Jordan, that is, failed to comply with the subpoena in the House Judiciary January 6th committee during the last Congress. As for his father, the House investigation of President Joe Biden, a formal impeachment inquiry vote did take place. It did pass two 221 to 212 with one Democrat not voting. The House approval of the resolution now strengthens the Republicans' position in court if there is any legal challenges to their subpoenas. House Republicans noted that the procedure used in this investigation is the same one used by other congressional probes, including the impeachment proceedings of former President Donald Trump. House Republicans have made similar demands to James Biden, the president's brother. The contempt proceedings come as Hunter is facing other legal troubles in Delaware and California stemming from the purchase of a gun and tax violations. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. Thank you, Eric. President Joe Biden met with the families of some of the eight Americans being held hostage by Hamas. The meeting was private with Secretary of State Antony Blinken in attendance. Hamas terrorists raided Israel on October 7th, killing about 1,200 people and taking about 240 hostages. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. 
Catherine, tonight around half of those hostages who were brutally abducted by Hamas remain in captivity. And today, more than a dozen family members of the American hostages spoke with President Joe Biden, many of them here in person, and others joined the conversation by phone. While Israeli troops remain locked in heavy combat in Gaza with the aim of destroying Hamas, at the White House, President Joe Biden holds his first in-person meeting with the families of some of the eight Americans still unaccounted for and presumed taken captive by Hamas. Afterwards, they spoke to reporters outside, including one father whose 35-year-old son is a hostage. He described his time with the president. It was... A terrific, terrific meeting and conversation. And as he held his son's picture close, he added, We could have no better friend uh, in Washington or in the White House than President Biden himself and his administration. And in the White House press briefing room this afternoon, more details laid out about what transpired in the meeting. He was moved by their stories, by the love they feel, by the hope that they still harbor. And he harbors that hope, too, but as Kareen rightly noted, he's acting on that. And as the families took more questions from reporters, I asked about Pope Francis's plea today to free all the hostages immediately. So when you talk about the Pope, our hope is that he and others like himself will influence the, these people in the Middle East that are all actors in this part of getting these hostages out. And that is all of our hope for a Christmas miracle. I hope that the Pope continues to speak and others around the world not only pray, but pray for us, pray for our families, pray for our leaders, pray for the president. Earlier, four Americans were released as part of a U.S. negotiated ceasefire. The White House has said that at least 31 Americans were killed by Hamas and others on October 7th. We are all one big family looking to get all of these people's sons and fathers and mothers out. Also tonight, the United States has announced new war-related sanctions against Hamas, targeting eight officials and representatives who manage the terror group's financial network. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly. As Owen reported, Pope Francis renews his call for an end to the fighting in Gaza. Speaking during his weekly general audience at the Vatican today, the Holy Father said there is so much suffering in Gaza. He asked all parties to resume negotiations so that aid can get to people in need. Pope Francis also called for the immediate release of all hostages. He concluded by saying, quote, no to weapons, yes to peace. The Israeli military says at least nine of its soldiers were killed during an ambush. The fighting comes as Hamas puts up stiff resistance in areas that Israel has isolated and pounded with airstrikes for more than two months. The air and ground war triggered by Hamas's October 7th attack has killed thousands of Palestinian civilians and pushed nearly 85 percent of Gaza's population from their homes. The latest ambush marks one of the deadliest single attacks that Palestinian militants have carried out since the ground invasion of Gaza. Israeli defense forces are flooding tunnels in Gaza with seawater. It is an effort to destroy Hamas's underground operations. Biden administration officials expressed concern for Gaza's freshwater supply and potential casualties. Israel says hostages are being held inside the tunnels. The Federal Reserve will be keeping its key interest rate unchanged. The Fed says inflation has eased over the past year, but remains high. The benchmark rate remains 5.4 percent, its highest in more than two decades. That has led to higher rates for mortgages and auto loans. While the economy shows signs of improvement, there is a decline in home sales and expensive household items. 
Close to 200 countries have agreed to move away from fossil fuels, coming out of the United Nations climate talks. The countries that approved a document at the COP28 conference agreed to try and get the world to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The deal also calls for tripling the use of renewable energy. The agreement gives nations some wiggle room in transitioning away from fossil fuels. We have a lot more still to come on EWTN News Nightly, including the war in Ukraine. President Joe Biden pledges the U.S. will support Ukraine for as long as we can. So why is that statement causing concern? Stay tuned for analysis and zeal for the gospel. How Pope Francis is challenging the faithful to be better Christians. Thanks for staying with us. Russia's war on Ukraine rages on. Russia launched a barrage of ballistic missiles at Kiev early this morning. While the Ukrainian Air Force said it shot down all of them, the falling debris from the interceptions damaged everything from a hospital to residential buildings. Kiev's mayor says at least 53 people were injured. It is the third attack on Ukraine's capital in the past week. Today's bombing happened as Ukraine's president paid a visit to Norway. He met with the country's prime minister, who reiterated Norway's long-term support in its battle against Russia. President Zelensky's trip to Oslo comes ahead of a critical European Council meeting in Brussels tomorrow. Ukraine is trying to become a member of the European Union and is hoping to start formal negotiations on it. With his country's future on the line, President Zelensky met with President Biden and congressional leaders yesterday. He delivered an urgent plea for more aid for his fight with Russia. It comes as a deadlock exists in Congress, with Republicans demanding tougher immigration rules before approving any new aid. But President Biden still pledged U.S. support for Ukraine. We'll continue to supply Ukraine with critical weapons and equipment as long as we can. For more, I want to bring in Doug Klain now. He is a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center, where he focuses on Russia's war on Ukraine, authoritarianism in Russia, and Ukraine's democracy-building process. Doug, a shift in President Biden's language about keeping up support for Ukraine, quote, as long as we can. What does that tell you about the U.S. commitment to Ukraine? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, that shift from President Biden is an unfortunate recognition that right now Ukraine aid is stalled in Congress. Uh, it has sent a signal to Vladimir Putin and other strongmen around the world that maybe right now the United States is starting to lose its mettle. Maybe our will to stand with the Ukrainian people as they resist Russia's invasion is starting to break. That is what Vladimir Putin has been counting on. Thanks to U.S. support, the Ukrainians have been able to resist Russia's invasion and liberate the people that have uh, been under occupation. But Putin's only hope for victory is if America backs down and turns its back on Ukraine. Well, to that point, in clear terms, what happens to Ukraine if it does not get any more U.S. funding? Well, in the immediate term, it's going to mean a much more difficult winter. 
Uh, as we introduced this segment, uh, you shared the news about the horrific air raid on Kiev last night. Now, thanks to American air defenses, uh, the Ukrainians were able to shoot down all these missiles and drones that were attacking civilians. Uh, if those supplies of air defenses do not continue, that means that more Russian missiles and drones will hit apartment buildings, hospitals, schools. Uh, Ukrainian soldiers are already reporting that on the front lines, they're running out of ammunition. Uh, this is the best hope that Putin has if the support we have just declines and, uh, and maybe backs down. Ukraine's top military commander said last month that the war had reached a stalemate. Would you agree with that assessment? Well, right now, uh, there has been less movement on the front line. We put a lot of hope on this counteroffensive, but we didn't set up the Ukrainians for success. Uh, we were training them to fight like a Western military, but we didn't give them the tools that Western militaries rely on, especially air superiority. And we allowed the Russians to have time to dig in and defend and fortify the front line. That made it very difficult for Ukrainian soldiers to get through. They just didn't have the right tools to do it. Uh, now, as we go into the winter, there's going to be a, a slowdown in fighting and things are going to be a bit more static. But the Ukrainians are going to be trying to prepare and figure out how they can make some kind of a breakthrough next year. Hopefully there are lessons that have been learned from the, the, this counteroffensive. And Doug, I just have a brief moment with you left, but how do you think the war between Ukraine and Russia will end? Well, ultimately, it's going to end in Ukraine's victory. Russia is fighting to try to eradicate the Ukrainian people, and the Ukrainian people know that. They know that this is a fight for their very survival. There is no option to give up, to trade away land and people. Russia has made it very clear that it intends to keep on going until it conquers Ukraine. Uh, just like in other places where a big military has been mired in a war like this, uh, it can go on for a very long time and it can get very bloody. But the people that are fighting for survival, they've got something a whole lot more important to fight for. And that's where U.S. support comes in. Uh, what we can do is impact how quickly Ukraine wins. We can give them the tools to try to end this war sooner and liberate their people. Doug Klein, thanks for your time. Thank you. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, praying for the future. How one religious organization is helping the faithful in Jerusalem amid the Israel-Hamas war. Plus, a light in the darkness, why an early church saint has her feast on one of the longest nights of the year. Welcome back. Pope Francis reminds the faithful every baptized person is called to witness and announce the gospel. At the weekly general audience in Rome, the Holy Father explained a Christian must be open to the word of God and to serving others. The faithful who do not will never succeed because instead of being faithful to God, they are only loyal to their own ideas. Earlier this week, Pope Francis said he is feeling better with no plans to resign. He also told a Mexican broadcaster some surprising news about his future and what would be a break from recent papal protocol. In an interview with the Mexican TV program N+, the Holy Father says he wants to be buried in the Basilica of St. Mary Major in Rome. It's where he traditionally prays before and after each of his foreign trips. 
Pope Francis would be the first pope buried outside of the Vatican's grotto crypt in St. Peter's Basilica in more than a century. He says he made the decision out of his devotion to the Blessed Virgin. The announcement came on yesterday's feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It is less than two weeks until Christmas, and the head of a Catholic lay organization dedicated to working in the Holy Land is concerned about the region around our Lord's birthplace. EWTN Vatican Bureau Chief Andreas Tornhauser caught up with Cardinal Fernando Filoni at a recent book event for his eminence. Well, the situation is very, very, very sad. And uh, really... Uh, everybody has a concern about the future of the Holy Land. In this moment, is terrible because uh, Holy Land uh, lives with uh, the presence of uh, pilgrims, and uh, the Church itself is in this moment you know, in difficulty. After the presentation of his new book on Episcopal Conferences in Rome, Cardinal Filoni also commented on the situation in the Holy Land. He is the Grand Master of the Order of the Holy Sepulchre, which the popes have long tasked with supporting the Latin Patriarchate of Jerusalem and the Christian presence in the region. Cardinal Fernando Filoni stressed that the order is doing everything possible to help the Church in Jerusalem. The order has thousands of members across the globe with a large presence in Europe and the United States. The knights and dames of the order pray and donate for the small Christian population, their schools and church buildings. This kind of help is more necessary than ever. Also, Pope Francis called for renewed efforts of the faithful to pray for peace during the inauguration celebrations for the nativity scene on St. Peter's Square. The Holy Father reminded all the faithful to pray for the people suffering from war and the Holy Land, especially as we contemplate what happened in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. In Rome, Andreas Tonhauser, EWTN News Nightly. Finally tonight, Scandinavians will hold long-celebrated traditions honoring the Feast of St. Lucy. In video of the celebrations from a few years ago, a procession sings hymns honoring the young virgin martyr. It is said that St. Lucy would travel with a candle-lit wreath on her head to light her path on the longest night of the year as she gave food to the poor. We thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Catherine Hadro. Good night and God bless.